Thank you for listening to the Alliance Church Podcast. We desire to connect you with God and one another, whether here in Wisconsin or around the world. Let's listen into this week's message. Well, before I begin uh, this week's message, this week's teaching, I just want to go back a couple weeks. Uh, I was teaching a couple weeks ago. I want to amend a grammatical mistake on my part. I was explaining um, my parents' parenting methodology, and then at one point I said, you're already laughing, so you totally know where this is going. I said that we were instructed as kids that if we wanted to interrupt adults, we had to place our hand on our parents. And I was in my mind, referring to what I thought was the abdomen, like the, the stomach area. Like that's what I thought I was saying. I didn't use the word abdomen though, I used a different word. I used the word bosom, which I thought meant stomach. I thought that that's what that meant. I was wondering why all of you were laughing so awkwardly loud. And this is a true story. And, and no one corrected me until after the second service. Thank you, first service, for that, for just letting me spread my idiocy all across the church. So my mom promptly corrected me because she had a lot of stake in the matter. She was, I was grounded immediately. So, um, yeah, and then when I polled the staff, it just didn't help at all. I'm like, I, I'm like, Monday morning, I'm like asking everybody, like, do you know what this word means? Like, what do you think? What part of the body is that word? And a third of the people had no idea. Like, they're like, we don't really know what part of the body that was. And the third of them knew what part of the body it refers to, which is the chest area. And then a third of them thought it was like your seat, like your behind, which was then two thirds of my <laughs> statement was really bad. And so, uh, I'll never use that word again. And I'll never be able to look you in the eyes ever again either. So speaking of famous falls, there's my intro for the service. Today we're going to continue talking about it. We're going to talk about failure. And today is interesting because we're going to talk about people who failed and are, or have a failure here. But they are people who walked with Jesus and debatably, many scholars will say this, probably knew him the best. These might have been his most inner circle people. This might have been the CEO. Uh, uh, if Jesus is the CEO, this is the COO and the CFO of the whole movement that Jesus was creating here on earth within three years of ministry. And it comes with the hands of James and John, Jesus' closest followers. So we're going to look over their shoulders this morning. We're going to do it in Luke chapter 9. And we're going to do an autopsy on one of their not-so-brightest moments here. This is Luke 9, verse 51. As the time approached for him, referring to Jesus, to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he set his, sent his messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. Now, just pause here. This is in the, in the whole book of Luke you could argue that the entire book of Luke turns right on that verse, that there is a music change. I was talking about this with Pastor Brandon this week. He described it as the lights go dim. This is where in the movie, like the hero of the story turns and starts to walk in super cool slow motion toward his mission, toward accomplishing his goal. That's where this is at. In fact, the rest of the book of Luke is a little different. Even Jesus' teaching is different. It's about discipleship. It's about what it means to follow him because his mission 
is he's going to Jerusalem and he knows there he'll be killed. He knows that. Even the disciples kind of knew. He had been upsetting the religious elite, the religious status quo of the day. And he had been teaching blasphemous things, like he is God, like he'll be the judge of the earth. He's the Lord of the Sabbath, which is basically saying that he's God. And he's teaching these things and he's building a following. So it's not just some crazy guy off in the corner. He's got a following of people now. And he's got power, he's doing miraculous supernatural stuff. And the religious elite are gonna leverage this movement to go before the Roman governance in Jerusalem and say, hey, this guy, Jesus, is starting a new religion. In the ancient Roman world, you, you had to worship Caesar and you could worship a few other approved by the state religions and other gods underneath Caesar. And you had to get your approval process in place. And if you were gonna start a movement, and do something significant and galvanize a whole group of people, and it wasn't one of the approved religions in the Roman Empire, they would kill you. And the religious elite were gonna leverage that as a great opportunity to put Jesus to death. Jesus knew this. His disciples knew. In fact, there were even portions of scripture where disciples knew he was going into dangerous places. Jerusalem's the belly of the beast. It's the most, it's the highest threat to his ministry. And he set his sight on it and he knows he's gotta go there. So he makes his way, and that's when slow motion music, lights dim, and then there's a vinyl screech, kinda, of, and it all stops right here. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. So they say no, so they're gonna derail his, his path, which is gonna involve a whole lot more complicated route of going across the Jordan and back. It's, it's much less direct, if you look on a map, where he's trying to go is straight, and now he's gotta go around and take this much less direct path to get there. So it's extremely inconvenient, to say the least. But the disciples have a reaction, and at first pass, when you, when you read this, it's gonna, it's gonna feel like a bit of an overreaction. So let's read it, this is verse 54. When the disciples, James and John, specifically saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to torch them? Do you want us to call down fire from heaven and destroy them? And your, your first thought there is, well, that escalated quickly, right? I mean, this is in your mind. You're like, you're passing through. If you put it in your own life's journey, you're passing through some town and you're like, hey, I didn't get a hotel for the night. Call up your buddy. Can I crash on your futon for the night? And he says, ah, now's not a good time. It's just a busy weekend. I'm so sorry, I can't help you. You hang up the phone and you're like, well, now I have to burn down the whole village. Now I have to burn down the whole place. I mean, that's what it might, at first reading, that feels like an overreaction, right? Let me give you four reasons why this is, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna use these words, debatably a reasonable reaction from those two. First is this, the, the cultural virtue of hospitality in the ancient world. It's, it's really difficult to unpack this and help you feel this in your own bones uh, this morning because it's so different than today. You know, even today, they, society has moved from front porches to back decks. You know, they, they talk about this in home construction, the 50s, big front porches, community-based fellowship every evening as the kids were out playing out in front of the yard. Now, if you build a home, it's like there's nothing but a front door, but everything's in the back. It's more private. In the ancient world, it was different. The, the, you depended on each other. You know, you depend on each other for survival. The community was a unit. They were working together for their own survival. Everything was out in front. 
And hospitality was a big deal. You, you didn't just uh, say no to someone passing through. In fact, you were obligated to say yes. It was, it was awkward, it was weird to get turned down. In the same way that if you called somebody today and said, hey, I'm in town, can I crash your place tonight? And that'd be a little off-putting, that'd be a little intrusive. In reverse, in the ancient world, that's how it was for the host to say no. You just don't do that. So that's the first thing you need to understand about how, how violent that was to say no to a, someone traveling through. And that goes across religions, that's a cultural um, virtue of the ancient world in the Middle East. In fact, in many parts of the Middle East today, in a lot of third world parts of the world, that's tr still true. Second, this was what I would call spiteful, like unnecessarily sticking it to Jesus because it's so public. You know, they, honestly, even this, this band coming through is going to bring, and Jesus has like 50 to 70 people a part of his ministry at this point. It's going to be a little bit of a boon for the economy. It's going to be a jolt of life into their social life at this time. It's, it's it actually, it's beneficial to facilitate this kind of commerce and industry and trade. That's why you, you wanted to be a city in a certain area so you could facilitate this kind of flourishing socioeconomic activity in your community. It, it's almost like they're going out of their way. That's how it would have been perceived. They've gone out of their way unnecessarily spite, spited Jesus. And it's very public. Like this wasn't a, like a backdoor arrangement. Everybody knew that the Samaritans in this community had just said, we reject who you are and everything you're about. It was very personal. They were sending, no question, a personal message that we don't like you. We don't agree with who you are personally. We want you to take it personally. Number three, they're Samaritans, and, and this is hard to describe. I gotta try to bring this into life today. Uh, the Samaritans believed that they were the one true Jewish religion. They believed they were on the right side of justice, the right side of history, the right side of what's truth in the cosmos. They worshiped Yahweh, but it was their version of Yahweh. They had the same first five books of the Bible, the Old Testament, that the Jews had, but they were a little twisted, they interpreted them in twisted ways. They didn't take all of the prophets, the, all the other passages and scriptures in the, in the prophetic literature that we have in the Old Testament. If you don't know this, the Jews, had, their Bible is the Old Testament. Our Bible is the Old Testament plus the New Testament. The Samaritans had just the first five books and it was twisted and they interpreted it weird. So it was, it was, it was almost blasphemous. Like when they would practice their religion, when they would worship. It was offensive to the Jews because it was like taking their religion and twisting it in a really profane, twisted way. And, and to the Samaritans, the Jews were blasphemous in reverse. Like they, they were a problem. They were, they were a disease. They were a cancer to the real Yahweh. And they upset the real Yahweh so much because it was this twisted version of his truth. And this is the view they had of each other. So I, the best way for me to like kind of help you feel this is think of in the modern American world today, uh, the group of people that hate Christians the most, they think that the Christians are actually the problem. They're ruining the country. They're ruining society. They're, they're openly aggressive against Jesus and what it means to be a part of a church and Christianity. Whatever, whatever that group is that's almost aggressive and militantly against Christians in our country, whatever that is, that's the Samaritans for the Jews. Does that help? Does that help give you a picture? 
So the Samaritans, not only are they saying no, but it's the Samaritans. Like they are doing this to spite Jesus. They're sticking it to him. And there's a fourth reason why James and John specifically ask for the torch. They ask for the bomb, the nuclear, the the fire. They ask for that. There's a specific reason why they bring that up to Jesus. And it has to do with a couple verses earlier describing an event from a few days ago. And it's in uh, Luke chapter 9, just where we are. Only it starts in verse 28. And I'm going to just read a little bit about what happened there. The verse is on the screen here. About eight days... After Jesus said this, he's, taught, he's doing some teaching, he took Peter, and then here they are, John and James, with him, and they went up a mountain to pray. It's a big deal. You're going to get private time with Jesus. You got hand-selected. This was very, you see this throughout scriptures. Those three, uh, throughout the four gospels, those three are often brought up uh, closer into Jesus's inner circle. They get more time with him. So he brings them up to the mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. And then two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. So here you have Jesus. His divinity is piercing through his humanity. He's revealing his glory, his divine attributes and his divinity. James, John, and Peter, they see this. They realize he is... He is God's man, or God is in him. God is with him. That's what they're trying to figure out. And then they see two guys, Moses and Elijah. Moses authored those first five books of the Bible, the the Pentateuch. Those first five books of the Bible were authored by Moses. He's a big deal. He led God's people, the Jews, out of Egypt, out of bondage in Egypt. And then you have Elijah, and he's famous for some stuff too. He's a prophet. He's famous for doing all kinds of supernatural, God-sized activity and work. But one of the things he's famous for is in 2 Kings chapter 1. It's where he brings fire down over some Samaritans. Let's read it. This is actually the passage. Then Ahaziah, who is the king of Samaria, sent to Elijah a captain with his company of 50 men. The captain went up to Elijah, who was sitting on top of the hill, And he said to him, man of God, the king says, come down. And this is Elijah's response. Elijah answered, if I am a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. And then fire fell from heaven and consumed the captain and his men. So here you have John and James. They just hang out with Jesus at this mountain. They see his divinity. They see he's a man of God, just like Moses and Elijah. And this is how Elijah handles Samarians, Samaritans. Maybe this is how Jesus is going to handle it. So they ask for all four of those reasons. Jesus, do we want to do it now, later? Should we wait till after dinner? When do we torch him? This is Jesus' reply, okay? When the disciples ask this, Jesus replies. Jesus turned and rebuked them. And then he and his disciples moved on, went to another village took a longer route. Here's how this goes. You and I, um, we, we come to church on a Sunday and, and we go up the mountain, right? We, we, we climb up the mountain, we, we play the music, we open God's word, we read it together and, and we see his divinity. Like we, we see his glory, we see his splendor. And his beauty of the, we see the truth. We see the reality of who he is. 
his holiness, his goodness, his, his glory. We see it. And then we get up the next morning on a Monday and we go to work with Samaritans. We, we, we go and have a 4th of July cookout with our in-laws, Samaritans, right? Or, or not, or your actual kids, or what, I don't know, whatever it is for your family. But you, you, we, go, we go to the world, we go out in the world, and we, we encounter Samaritans. And, and some of them, I mean, if, if we're going to go by the definition of what it is to be a Samaritan to a Jew and apply that to our world today, they are spiteful. I mean, they are just so resentful of everything we stand for and we believe, and they're unapologetic about telling us or getting in our face about it. They, they make it double as hard to raise our kids or, or send them to a school or watch a movie without having to fast forward stuff. And you're like, you didn't have to put it in there. You didn't have to put it in there. You went out of your way to put that agenda in there or whatever it is. And it makes it double as hard to be a Christian in America, the Samaritans. And it just grows every time you turn on the news, whatever it is. And it's just this, this, this resentment, this, they, they just they hate us, right? Samaritans. There's this undercurrent that begins to grow in your life. It's this feeling. It's called anger. It's there when you don't even feel it. It starts to kind of affect everything you do, your relationships, the way you see people. Just the way they look, the way they dress, maybe what they wear, what, what, they, what kind of colors they have. And, and you just start to have this resentment. And then you might find yourself praying this prayer. Same ones James and John prayed. Lord, should we call down the fire? I mean, just, if you don't say it out loud, you think it, right? You feel it. And if you get to that place, you got to know that Jesus of the Bible is going to gently rebuke you. And this is my prayer today. We're going to go through three things that leap off of this text this morning. Just to close, we're gonna go through three things. And this is my prayer. This was when I was working through this passage. I just was like, Lord, my hope is that you would assuage or put it like a healing ointment or, or balm on a person's heart who has just got that undercurrent of, of anger, probably from woundedness. I mean, personally attacked for what they believe or again, it's double as hard to maybe be a parent or be a friend in, a, in such a tumultuous landscape and a, a politicized minefield that you have to run through. I mean, it's like double as hard and we're resented or whatever. And that anger that just builds up becomes like a tar and just weighs you down. It pulls on all your relationships. And my hope today is that Jesus' gentle rebuke to us softens our heart and does some healing work in all of us this morning. So let's look at what we learned from this. The first thing we learned is this. We have to change how we, and this is the best way I could describe it, how we steward or use or dispatch the power that we have of being right. How we wield our rightness. First thing you got to know about this passage is that the Samaritans, by all accounts, are a hundred percent wrong. Okay, they're not right. This is not, Jesus is not rebuking them because the Samaritans had it right. They were wrong. This was offensive. This was blasphemous. This was uh, to a holy God. I mean, they had just told God incarnate in the flesh, we don't want you here and we reject you personally. That's wrong. 
That is sin, and it is worthy of punishment and wrath. There's no version of studying this scripture and walking away going, you know, the Samaritans are right. They did the right thing. No, it was wrong, 100%. But this is challenging fundamentally how we as Christians and Jesus followers hold the power of being right. And let me tell you, it's very different than the way the world holds the power of being right, at least in their own minds. When the world thinks that they're right, they beat you with it. It becomes a a bludgeoning tool, right? I mean, if there's one of the things we saw in, in 2020 was if someone was convinced that their view on the whole thing was right, regardless of what it was, it very often became a weapon. I mean, it was like, I'm right, and not only are you wrong, but because you're wrong, you shouldn't even be in this country, you're ruining this country, and that you were getting torched on social media, and maybe over the dinner table. It was this, it was very intense. It was fire, right? That's how the world stewards being right, is I'm to rain down fire on your party. That's not how Jesus stewarded it here. That's not what he asked his followers to do with their being right, with their rightness. Do you notice something? That the only people that get rebuked by Jesus in this whole situation is his followers. And there's a clue as to why. And it's right here. It's what they say. They ask this question. The disciples ask, Lord, do you want us to do it? Do you want us, us, that's the word. Do you want us to call down fire from heaven? Jesus is telling telling you and me today, there is no human worthy and no human should. Close their eyes, fold their hands, and pray for those who persecute them and ask for fire. That's just a prayer we can't pray. That's, That's not our role. That's not the role we can play. And it has to do with number two, okay? Here's number two. We need to change how we view, how we see our rightness, okay? There's, there's the prayer I just mentioned, right, where you close your eyes and you want to say it and you don't, won't say it out loud, but you want to in your heart, Lord, burn this guy. Bring down the fire on this person, this Samaritan, this boss at work, this colleague, this, this, this relative, whatever it is, this friend. You, you know, you just want to, ah, oh, just torture. You want to say that. That's the one prayer. There's a second prayer that Jesus has a problem with. And he actually describes it a couple chapters later in the same book, Luke. And I'm going to read the whole section here, but on the screen behind me, there'll be one of the verses. Uh, It's in Luke chapter 18. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like the other people, the robbers, the evildoers, the adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God have mercy on me. I am a sinner. I tell you the truth, this man rather than the other went home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. There is another prayer that we can't pray. And it's the Pharisee prayer. Lord, thank you you didn't make me like those guys, those people on the news, those idiots who don't get it. And I'll tell you why. Because just like the Pharisee said, the Pharisee said, thank you you didn't make me like that guy. Well, I'll tell you what, the Pharisee is right. He's actually not like the tax collector. He's in a worse situation. He's in a more, more tragic place because 
not only is he a sinner just like the tax collector, but the bummer is, is he's blind. He doesn't realize it. He doesn't even know. And that is a more scary place to be. The reality is, is we're all, we're all worthy of fire. In fact, look at, look at Proverbs chapter 20. I just, this is from just, just another part of scripture. It says this, ears to hear, eyes to see the truth. It's a gift. Listen, it's a gift from God. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. It's not something you worked hard to get. It's a gift. You don't take credit for a gift. It's just given to you. Just receive it and say, thank you. That's all it is. And there is a healing balm. There is, I don't know how else to describe it. There's this healing in your heart that happens when you see this on the news, when you see people at work, when you see people across the dinner table. And you're just, they're blind. There is something healing that says, that, that says, so am I. I am one gift away from God from being worse than they are, w worse than this person. And there's something healing that happens when we move from, they deserve it, they deserve the fire, moving over to, you know what, we all do. We all deserve it. I'll end with, with this thought. I'm gonna have the, the worship team come back up. We're gonna close in a second. We're gonna close about getting our vision right, getting our eyes right, and asking God to be the, the one to do that so graciously and kindly to do that to us. But there's, this is the last thought I had. I'm thinking about this passage. I'm, I'm listening to John and James, and they're demanding that Jesus rain down fire, and for them, that's reasonable. That's a reasonable response. And, and I'm listening to this, and I'm thinking, what kind of God? Like, what, what kind of... Sorry, I don't know, that wasn't me. Is that, uh, we're getting ready for something to happen here. <laughs> Hopefully it's not fire. Okay. What, what kind of God did they have in mind? You know, that would look at that prayer, look at that request, and say, yeah, let's do it. Let's bring the fire down. What, what kind of God is that? You know, it's a pretty terrifying God, if I'm honest, and I'll tell you why. This is why it's scary to me. Because I know that there have been days where I woke up in the morning, and I, and I realized, I, I woke up, and I said, Lord, I, I told you to go around a village this week. I told you to go around my plans for my week. I want these to be my plans, and Lord, I want you to take the long route. Don't go through the village of my plans for this week. And, and maybe for you, you know, there's certain villages in your life that you have said, Jesus, you can have these routes, but don't come through this, this village. You're not welcome here. You're not welcome in my in my career village like that's mine you can have everything else but my business is my business go around it you can have my my Sunday morning but go around my weekends you can't go through my village of my weekends you can't go through my leisure time my time off my vacations you can't go through my bank account my finances I want you to go around that Jesus doesn't belong to you take the long way I mean we have all told Jesus God Go around. We've all done it. There's some area of our life where we have not been hospitable to the Almighty God. And what do you do when your version of God hears that and a response 
bring down the fire. There have been places in your life that you've told God to go around, and let's be honest about those places. They're on fire anyway. They're on fire, and they're burning up other villages in your life. And, and maybe there's been people that have been hurt by those villages that you've kept Jesus out of, and they've called for your torching. They've called for you to be burned. Look at what you did to your first marriage. You should be burned for it. And Jesus steps in. He says, no. He rebukes them. He says, no. No, the real Jesus of the Bible says, no. I'm going to rebuke you because I'm going to take the fire. Do you know what the cross is? It's not wood. It's not nails. It's not a crown of thorns. It is the fire of the wrath of God that you and I deserved for telling Jesus, go another way. That's what the cross is. And Jesus gets up on it. He takes it. That's why he says no to the disciples. That's why he says, no, you can't pray that prayer because I took that fire. Jesus in this text is the only one that reserves the right. He's the only one that is worthy of praying down the prayer, praying down the fire on anybody. And he chooses not. What does that say about your role? If he can't do it, he doesn't do it, or he chooses not to do it, what does it say about you? You can't choose to do it either. You cannot pray that prayer. Let Jesus gently rebuke you this morning, and I'll tell you why. First of all, if you pray that prayer and you believe in a Jesus that says, yeah, let's get him, if you believe that, then it guts your ability to see lost people the way Jesus does. And it sidelines you from mission. And it guts your ability to run to God who will receive you with open arms when you know you've told him no. When you know you've told him no, you will never run to him unless he's the God who got up on the cross and took the fire for you. Why don't you stand as you're able? Let's worship him this morning. Let's just ask him to be our vision, to help us see it better to give us the gift that we didn't earn or deserve or work hard for. Just let him open your eyes. Help him, help him help you see him as the one who got in the fire for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there's a short couple minutes here, but there's a lot of eternal work I'm asking you to do. Lord, would you do it again? Would you help us see you as someone who took it for us that doesn't rain it down on us because you rained it down on your son on our behalf. So Lord, would we rebuke, would we rebuke with your words, the voices in our head that say we deserve it, we deserve to be burned. May we even rebuke them by agreeing, we do deserve it. But Jesus, you were the one that took it. May you help us, give us the strength to see it in our hearts and in our minds. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Let's worship.